From listener-supported KTOO, welcome to Juno Afternoon, broadcasting live from the homelands of the Aquan and on demand as a podcast. It's Wednesday, January 24th, 2024. I'm your host, Boston Christopher, and I'm melting. It's uh, very wet out there. Gunnath Chish, how salamat for joining the conversation. On today's show, Platypus Con is happening this weekend. Save yourself from this weather and hop inside to learn and play all kinds of games. We'll chat with the organizers. Death with Dessert is back and raising more money and showing and Betsy Longenbaugh will update on this year's tours. And with all this weather, we thought it a great day to check in with KTOO's climate reporter, Anna Canny, and find out about avalanche threats and more. Those conversations, music, and more coming up this hour on Juno Afternoon. Hanson Gress, Ka eat with the shu yi, we kashuk a yi tin. Jin kat ka kei jin tauk anakaya ha anikak gunishish. Before we begin today, an update on one of our segments from yesterday. We talked with Christopher Cook, music director from the Juno Symphony, but today we've heard from them regarding this weekend's concert. Here's from junosymphony.org. The symphony has made the difficult decision to cancel the concerts this weekend to ensure the safety of our musicians, audience, and volunteers. In addition to the performances, we must also consider safety during rehearsals, equipment move-in, musician travel and numerous other activities that take place prior to the main stage concerts. They say, stay safe, and we'll look forward to seeing you at the April 6th and 7th concerts. For more information on ticket exchanges uh, for future concerts, uh, please email info at junosymphony.org. And from KTOO, we wish everyone the best and safety at the symphony and throughout the city as we continue to deal with these weather conditions. Support for Juno Afternoon comes from Heritage Coffee Roasting Company, providing Juno with locally roasted coffee for over 40 years, with cafes and drive through locations throughout Juno. More at heritagecoffee.com. You're listening to community-supported Juno Afternoon on KTOO at 104.3 Juno, 91.7 Juno Ock Bay, and online at KTOO.org. I'm your host, Boston Christopher. This weekend, you'll have access to an expansive game library and can participate in tournaments, role-playing adventures, and more at the annual Platypus Con. Put on by Platypus Gaming, this convention goes all out for three days at Centennial Hall, and it kicks off this Friday night at 6 p.m. And joining me now to share all the gaming goodness is Josh Warren, president of Platypus Gaming. Thank you so much for being here. How's it going? Uh, pretty great. Thanks for having me. Good. Excellent. I know uh, we were just talking before uh, we got on air that you are in the process of loading into Centennial Hall and and what a day to be doing it. <laughs> Better than yesterday, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. With uh, over 2,200 games, getting everything to Centennial was uh, an adventure in itself. Wow. That is amazing. Now, I know that over the last couple of years, I guess it is, that Platypus Con has had to go virtual, and then I think we had to cancel one time. But this is, we're back, and we're in person. Yeah, we're back, and in, in January. Like, we had to do September last year because of the renovations, and so now we're back in January. We like our January weekend, except for the snow. <laughs> um, but yeah, we like being the full weekend at the end of January, so people yeah. can look forward to that this year and going forward. I mean, it's a great thing to do to get inside and just sort of play these games and and um, and find out what kind of games you might be interested in. So let's get into to a little bit of detail because I know there's a. I mean, you just said, did you say twenty two hundred games? We might be over twenty three now, but I can guarantee you over twenty two hundred. Wow, that is amazing. And so, 
we can't go through all of them. Um, no, probably not. <laughs> but let's let's talk about some of the the highlights. What are the most popular ones that you see emerging as as the weekends progress? The ones we had though in September, Azul was really popular, which is a fun little tile lighting game. It's very simple to play and get you going pretty quickly. Century, uh, another pretty simple game. Uh, Evolution. Uh, these are all like Evolution's about ten years old, but we also have some of the classics like Acquire. Which I learned as a kid, but came out in the seventies or the sixties, I think. We also have that one. Uh, so there's a lot of fun games, and we always sort of take it as somewhat of a challenge. Like if you don't say you like board games, but you want to give it a try anyways, we're happy to take the effort to try to find a game that you love. Now I know one of the things that you all do throughout the year is that you assist the library, right? Don't you have like sort of monthly gaming days out at the Valley Library as well? It used to be quarterly, but now we have moved to monthly, except for this month. Uh, we have a, an event coming this weekend. You're a little busy con- this weekend. <laughs> conflicted with our normal library game day. Yeah. But yeah, normally the last Sunday. Okay. Um, there's one more weirdness this year with Easter being the last Sunday, so we moved off of that date. Uh, but we've been trying to have little tiny events going going through. It's cool. Now, these games range from like your typical board games that we might have played as a kid. I mean, do you have something as simple as like Sorry is Sorry in there? and and like Sorry might be in our kids area, but I think we do have it. We do have Monopoly. Monopoly, yeah. I'm not going to say it's the best game ever, but I think people, if you follow the rules correctly, it's in under an hour. Um, yeah. So a lot of people have a lot of house rules for Monopoly. There are a lot of house rules. I have a, a funny story about that, Josh. When I was teaching my – I never let my daughter win at games. <laughs> and when we first played Monopoly <laughs> – um, she went bankrupt and, uh, and she did not have a good time with that, but it was, she, I think she was about eight years old. Maybe I don't remember, but she came back the next day. And this is, this is what I loved about it because this is one thing I think about when you teaching your kids how to play. She came back with a fierce competitive nature. She was like, let's go. Dad. <laughs> and she wanted to play again. And, uh, that was pretty amazing. And it, it, it still to this day is she's pretty competitive in her, in her nature. So I, I really attribute monopoly for that. But then you, so we have sort of those classic games that we maybe we all grew up with. And then I know for those of us who shop around in town and maybe go to Alaska Robotics and we find some strange game, uh, like I just picked up a game over the holidays called Perspectives, which was a really fun game, um, sort of a group solving mystery game. With, and it came in these little file cases and pictures and you don't have to share the information and it's not a competitive game at all. It's a cooperative game. Um, and then you probably go into things like those more difficult sort of role playing games that have tons of rules and lots of pieces and stuff, right? Yeah, so we have the library all uh, categorized. So if you know what you want, so like perspectives is probably in our cooperative section. So if you want to play against the game, which I found a lot of people didn't know existed, but there's actually a sizable amount of games where you're just trying to work together. Uh, Daybreak is a new one that just came out, which is a collaborative work to solve global warming, which is... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the game's very difficult, and it definitely uh, makes you work for it, but it, it's pretty innovative, and I really like it. Um, but we also do, as you said, have – like we have a heavy strategy section that only go there if you're if you're really working to spend a couple hours really digging yeah, into the game. Yeah, if you're there until – because I know I, we do want to mention the hours. So Friday it kicks off at 6 p.m., and it goes till 2 in the morning that night. And then on Saturday it goes from 10 a.m. to 2 a.m. So that's a long – that's the longest day. That's definitely a long day. That's the long day. And then the hours on Sunday are from 10 to 6. This is at Centennial Hall. Um, you can go to Platypus Gaming. Uh, dot org for more information about it and to get your tickets. It costs, I think, 12 bucks if you want to go for one day or 35 for the whole weekend, I believe is how Well, it is. 12 is a kid single day. Oh, 12 uh, is a king single day. Okay. For adults, it's 35 for the weekend, 20 for the day. Oh, okay. 20 for the day. Um, so from, from 12 to $35, depending upon what your family makeup is. Um, and that is that is a great price, I think, to be able to serve because you have to rent out the hall and you've got all access to all these games. And what's cool about it, I think, is if you have seen a game that you want to try but don't want to invest because some of these games are pricey. Like when you get into some of these more complicated ones, they get to be $125 or more sometimes. Um, And this is an opportunity to sort of try it out and see if it actually is a fit for you. Yeah, board games are not immune from inflationary pressures we've seen the last few years. Like more and more games are costing to three digits. We also have our play to win section, which is about 100 games this year, depending on how many arrive in the mail between now and Friday. Um, where all you have to do is try the game out at the con, fill out a form, and you have a chance to win it. So there's a lot of people who come who 
essentially come out uh, in the black for oh. their weekend because they've like they've gotten a game that was more than their ticket. Um, oh, that's by, cool. Playing it. I love that. So the play to win action you can do when you're when you're there trying out some new stuff. It always encourages people to try out new stuff as well. Um, now, for someone who may be a layperson. Uh, do I need to know anything about these games or can I come and people are going to help me out? So that's one thing I was going to mention. Like I, it can be daunting to hear that I have over 2000 games to play every day. We have, I think eight games that are being demoed and they're some of our favorites from both this year and past years. And we have people who volunteers who are excited to teach you the game. So if you don't want to do any work and just play a game, they're happy to teach you a game. And we have, in those demo areas, we have some of our more complicated games as well as some of our simpler games. So there should be something for everyone in the demo space. Okay. Now, this is going to be a tough question for you, I think. What's your, f- maybe not, what's your favorite game of all time? Uh, we were thinking about this today because we do normally get this question. So we try to prepare <laughs> ourselves for this one. Right now, I think I'm going to go with the call. Um, it has a lot of like history for me personally, but I do think it's a great game. Came out like ten plus years ago, but it's a, a fun little game about like digging up the temples of Tikal. Uh so sort of archaeology esque, but also it can be very cutthroat. Um, so it's a lot of fun. That's an interesting one. That sounds good. And do you you, you mention in the description of the convention? Uh, you know, role playing games. Do people are you do are people encouraged to dress up in their favorite wear, or do you find people doing that, or what? What does it mean for? I play a lot of role playing games on computer, yeah. which is a little bit different because you know I'm in the dark at my house. But like, what is a role playing game, and how does it play out when you're doing it at the convention? We do have someone almost the whole convention running. I think they run D and D five fifth edition. Um, so that's the main RPG we have running most of the weekend. Uh, and there are people who dress up. We don't have any, some year we might have some awards for like cosplay or dress up, but we have not gotten there yet. Um, Last Box has their mini con that I think more people might do that there because it's more of a comic yeah, bench yeah. thing. Yeah, for sure. Um, but we definitely, and I do compliment people when I see them wearing it because I, I wish I had the skill set to make some of those costumes because they can be pretty impressive. Nice. Nice. And who would you say that this convention is for? Obviously, it's for, you know, us nerds and geeks who love role-playing games and board games and things like that. But do you think it's for um, a a wider swath that you think people should come and check it out? I think people should definitely come and check it out. As I mentioned earlier, if you have even a passing interest in board games, I think we could find a game that you would really love and want to be like, I'm going to go buy this after this convention so I can play it at home kind of a thing. Uh, and we have, we're also trying to make it so people can find other people, maybe not just to play board games with, but to socialize. Like we have a social mixer on both of the evenings that people can go to. And we have a bingo sheet that's codes in the program. And like, t- I think two of the X's, the boxes on the bingo sheet are play with a stranger. So we're not only trying to introduce people to board games, but also introduce people to others. Oh, that's nice. I like that. That's really good. Do you have one of my favorite games? Do you have Exploding Kittens? We do have Exploding Kittens. Because there's, there's a lot of card games out there that, and and boy, that Exploding Kittens, the oatmeal's great, and he did all the art for it. And I know the game is blown up, and you know every Christmas I get one of the expansions. <laughs> so my deck has, has definitely grown over the years, um, and they make some great games. Um, and I don't know. That's just a really fun one. It's easy to learn too. Easy to learn, yeah. hard to master. One of those kind of games. Um, so you feel like beginners to those who are a little bit more advanced can find something for themselves at the con. Definitely. Like if you know games really well, we have uh, tournaments going all weekend. One of them, well, multiples of them are like qualifiers for national level tournaments. Uh, so if that's your thing, and then we have. This year we added tournaments for young kids, so like ages five to twelve. So tournaments that they're only only they are allowed to play in. So we're trying to like we have people who are quite old. No offense to them. Uh, we, <laughs> we're happy to have them, and also kids down to very young. We have a whole area devoted to family stuff, full of family games. So we encourage families, people who are, uh, and everyone else to come and play some games. Wow, that's great. I love that there's a tournament aspect. Like if that's your jam, if you are that competitive, you can get in there. And um, what's the youngest uh, tournament this year, like in terms of age for folks? 
Uh, I think five is five. the uh, you can be in playing the Suro tournament or the Ice Cool tournament. So the, we're calling them the Puggle tournaments because that's the name for a baby platypus. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> always such a great, great naming uh, system from Platypus Gaming and always a great con. Glad to see that it's back in January. Um, let me give these details one more time. It's this Friday, January 26th through 28th, which is Sunday. The hours are Friday from 6 p.m. to 2 a.m., um, hours on Saturday are 10 a.m. to 2 a.m. And then Sundays from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. It's a fun full weekend of gaming with, a, like I said, an expansive game library. There's game demos, as Josh mentioned. There's tournaments all the way down to age five and then all the way up to, you know, whatever age you happen to be. Um, RPGs. Oh, we didn't mention this. What's the mini painting? So if you present your badge at the, like, the little concession stand we have, um, you can get a free mini. We have a lot of platypuses and other things this year. We we commissioned a 3D model for a platypus, uh, so that can be your free one if you want. And then we have a table underlaid with tarp and covered with paper so we don't get paint anywhere that you can uh, paint your mini during the weekend if you want. Some people find it pretty relaxing. And we have a puzzle room this year as well, like a quiet room. So Oh, nice. Nice. I love that. It's the platypus gaming convention or platypus con and you can go to platypusgaming.org to find out more information and to get your tickets it's this weekend josh thanks so much for coming in and helping us out and telling us about this event and good luck with the weather out there be safe yeah definitely drive safe when you come visit us yeah absolutely all right thanks so much for coming in thanks up next, Death with Dessert. Learn about some of the infamous murders here in Juno while eating some delicious food. And it's a fundraiser. We'll find out more next here on Juno Afternoon from KTOO. Let's have a star party. This is Steve Kosos with the Marie Drake Planetarium. I'm going to talk about what's inside a black hole. So we've heard of these things. It's not an object, a black hole. An object would uh, be like a white dwarf or a neutron star, which are certainly the strangest objects in the universe. No, a black hole is a volume, a region of space-time that has left our universe. It's in a sense, a rip of space-time. Space-time is a four-dimensional mathematical structure, three dimensions of location and one dimension of time that we use, used by Einstein as general theory of relativity. So there is a boundary to a black hole, but it's not a physical boundary. It's a mathematical boundary. It's called the event horizon. And it's the point at which the escape velocity is equal to the speed of light. As you enter the volume of a black hole, the escape velocity is greater than the speed of light. Escape velocity is the velocity necessary to escape a gravitational field. Now, there's many different speculations about what is inside a black hole, and I'll put out three of them. The, the classical theory says that the center of black hole has a singularity, which is an undefined mathematical construct that has zero volume and infinite density because all the mass that enters a black hole goes into the singularity. Now, that does not make sense. So there's other speculative explanations. One that a black hole is what's called a fuzzball, which means that it's full of strings from string theory. Strings are one-dimensional vibrating objects that create all of matter as we know it. Another speculation is that information is faster than the speed of light so that the, the mass and energy entering the black hole uh, is able to leave the black hole, possibly in the form of Hawking radiation. This is Steve Kosos with the Reject Planetarium. Our public shows on our website at rejectplanetarium.org. Thank you. Thank you.
This is Juno Afternoon from your listener-supported public media station, KTOO. I'm your host, Boston Christopher. For the last several years, Ed Schoenfeld and Betsy Longenbaugh have hosted sold-out tours of various topics all around town. These programs are always a hit, pun intended, and all the funds go to a good cause, sometimes Holy Trinity Church and others to the Juno Douglas City Museum. These longtime, now quote-unquote retired journalists, spend hours pouring over microfilm, researching and finding not only the details of these cases, but the social issues uh, of these sometimes known and other times unknown murders in the capital city, which also happens to be the title of Betsy's recent book. And we'll chat about a new book coming out that she has called Death in the Underworld. Welcome, Betsy and Ed. Thank you so much for being here. How's it going? Oh, it's going great. I was loving the idea of black holes before we talk about black hearts. That's why I played it. (laughs) (laughs) I figured it was a good one for today. And you're joining us via Zoom all the way from Douglas. Uh, So thank you so much for that. Not having to get out there in these crazy road conditions as more and more of this snow melts and becomes slush and and no fun for anybody, really. Um, But we're here. Thank you. Yeah. So before we begin, though, I did want to talk before we talk about death with dessert um ed ktoo is celebrating 50 years of programming as of this saturday january 27th now i know you started working at kto back in the late 70s um do you have any fond memories of those early days of ktoo that you could share with us uh many many and a few which i could share with us (laughs) um i think One of my favorite was my first day on the job. And this was a creaky old building that's been gone for decades. Um, If you dropped anything around, uh, you'd have to chase it down the hall uh, because there was such a slope. And I walked in and introduced myself to people and was shown where I was going to sit. And the sun was shining so brightly in the window that I couldn't see. Of course, it wasn't a screen issue because we had no, no computers then at the station. Um, and I asked somebody, I said, oh, were there blinds or anything? And they looked at me like I was crazy. They said, Ed, the sun hasn't been out for two months, three months. Enjoy it. It was like, okay. And that was a little bit of an introduction to Juno. And then we went on to reorganize the way classical music was played because I was program director. That was February of 1979. Wow. Wow. Yeah, we've got a lot of plans coming up. We're going to talk about a little bit on Friday. Um, The official day is on Saturday, and then we've got some other plans for the spring, but more on that later. But I just wanted to to chat with you about that because um, as we look back and remember everyone who's gone through um, KTOO and all around uh, public radio in Southeast Alaska, I know you were at uh, Coast Alaska for a number of years as well as the Juno Empire, but um, just those fond memories of KTO as as we remember 50 years um, of basically locally owned by members here in Juneau um, news and information and programming. So thanks so much for that. All right. Thank you. So let's start with the new season of Death with Dessert. This is such a great program that y'all do. I know it's one of many that you do throughout the year. Um, you do stuff in the summer. This is sort of the uh, one of the winter programs that you do. So tell us a little bit about what's coming up for Death with Dessert. Well, the first, it, it's a series of three programs on the first uh, Saturday of the month, starting February 3rd. The first show um, is called Alaska's First Serial Killer. And it's about a fellow who went by many names. His real name was Edward Slomke. He was known in Southeast Alaska, among other names, as Edward Kraus. And he was a serial killer. He would uh, basically figure out a routine where he would abduct or distract men, single men generally, who didn't have real strong connections to a community, so they might not be missed. And again, this is a long time ago, 19... 19 uh, teens, and uh, he would take them out on a boat or a hunting trip or something, and they would never return. He picked people who had assets, who had some form of wealth, uh, real estate, not much, might be a cabin in the woods or a boat or something, and he would steal their identity and uh, their property and their savings accounts and everything else he could get his hands on. 
And he got away with this as far as we're sure he killed seven people. He likely could have killed seven more. And I have a few more suspicions, but it's um, the, the information is a little sketchy. <laughs> yeah, if there's somebody with a black heart, it was definitely Edward Slumkey. He was he was really a scary guy. And and for those early Junoites, remember who was at least the white population here in Juno were a lot single men, unattached, making good money. They were they were his victim. They were the profile of his victim. So when people started realizing what was going on, it, it kind of went cuckoo land. I mean, it's it's absolutely fascinating how the newspaper responded to it, how uh, folks even in Seattle responded to it, and and the whole story of catching him, which involved a Pinkerton detective. I'm it's it's just an incredibly wonderful story and uh, fascinating. The more we read, the more we were like, oh, look at this and look at that. It's it's. It's very complicated and absolutely fascinating. And there, there's a hero in the story of a detective uh, who just did things that people didn't do in police departments or marshal's offices in those days. It was, at the time, very advanced investigative technique. Of course, this was before DNA, before fingerprinting was used, before uh, blood type. Uh, about the only thing they could do would be if they found a bullet, they might be able to match it generally to the caliber of another gun. But they did match typewriter to typewritten letters, which really kind of surprised me because this, this was 1914 at that point. And, and they were able to find a typewriter in his possession that they then directly connected to a number of other letters that he'd sent opposing his different people. So, I, re- I remember that from some shows, like movies and stuff, where they actually, because the way the typewriter would hit the paper, right? In terms of the way exactly. the, 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 what are those things called that the each individual letter is on and that how that hits uh-huh. the paper is what can tell which typewriter it came from. And and it, it is really interesting to me that at a time when there was so little done forensically that they they really were matching this typewriter. And that turned out to be a key uh, component of uh, the later uh, trials. So so this this story goes along lots of lots of things happening, lots of people disappearing. And then there's a surprise at the ending, which is. Uh, mind-blowing so so wonderful story it's a little longer than a lot of ours it's probably a good 90 minutes but um i'm i'm excited about doing this and of course we're going to have a dessert designed by um our daughter maggie Donefeld, who runs treadwell kitchens and designs a specific dessert for each presentation and it's unique and i think this one's going to be cheesecake with a cereal crust (laughs) (laughs) Uh, that sounds good (laughs) let me give the details of that just so we get it out of the way now too Um, alaska's first serial killer is at 3 p.m saturday february 3rd at mcfeeters hall holy trinity's church at 325 gold street in downtown juno um and you can get tickets at trinityjuno.org slash dessert.php or by calling the church at 586-3532 now i know the previous times i've had y'all on um these tours sell out so fast these discussions these talks these tours you, they're always sold out so how are we looking so far for the first one are we are we early enough are we getting the promo out early we're, enough we're early enough that there that there are still tickets available um yeah. and we don't have a real good sense um we we expect to sell out mm-hmm. but you never plan it <laughs> you never know and and honestly with the weather we've been having i think it's going to take a little while till people are thinking a whole lot about going out. Yeah, it's but a little, it's, it's a little rough out there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And um, so that's, that's the first show. That's the first uh, show. Okay. And then, um, and that one's on February 3rd. And then we've got two mm-hmm. more. Let's discuss those just a little bit. Uh, Saturday, March 2nd. Tell us a little bit about Death of a Vaudevillian. Um, okay. This happened in 1920. And there was a guy up here in Alaska. He would spend the summer season up here doing whatever he could basically to make a buck and um, and put himself before the public. He was just sort of a publicity hound, I think. So he played piano. He acted in different things. He did vignettes. And this summer, he started running, um, the previous summer, I think, he started running these boats around to all the little cannery towns and villages in southeast Alaska, showing films. He had a movie projector, selling contraband liquor, for sure. 
and um and and I think they played guitar and little songs. And um one of his crew crewmates decides he's fed up with a guy and um kills him. And it's a the fascinating thing about this story for me, having grown up in Sitka and Juneau, is that people are still disappearing this way. A boat goes out and one person makes it back. And that's exactly what happened. And if it hadn't been for a passing boat, this man would absolutely have gotten away with the crime. There's oh, just so not somebody, a doubt. So somebody saw him do it. Saw the boat on fire mm. oh. and, and, a, and somebody madly rowing away from it. And if it hadn't been, it was a um, uh, recognizable, right? And they were just lucky that the cook spotted the fire, mm-hmm. and, the, and the captain said, "Let's go see if we can help." So diverted their their mm-hmm. um, plans to go, and it was a summer evening, so it would have been daylight still, which was also fortunate. So, so the, it was just a bizarre circumstance that, honestly, if it had been an hour. Earlier, an hour later, I doubt anybody would have ever found this guy. Now, so, I mentioned um, it. I mentioned it in the intro, but you mm-hmm. all pour over microfiche and microfilm, and you look back and you sort of piece together. I mean, your your history as journalist probably helps you do this, but you like you piece together all the different angles of the story. Is that how you put them together? Is that how you find you find do. little details here and there? Yeah. So we. I'm a member of Ancestry.com. I've yet to look up anyone in my family, but I certainly looked up a lot of killers' families and their victims. And and this was the perfect example of that. Mm. It was, um, it was, it was, uh, it, Ancestry.com allowed me to find out this guy's, the victim's history, as well as um, the man who killed him, who actually had been already sent to prison for murder when he was 18 years old down in California. And and the other thing that has always been helpful for us is contacting the federal archives because especially with prisoners who went to Alcatraz or Leavenworth, they're pretty good records. So um, this prisoner ended up at Leavenworth and the archivist there and I have become pretty close so during all this research. And he was he was super helpful in sort of tracking what happened. Um, at Leavenworth. Wow, that's amazing. And I do want to mention again that these are all a fundraiser. Um, This series for uh, Death with Desert is a fundraiser for Holy Trinity Church. And that's really wonderful. And then this last one, I want to just mention briefly the Saturday, April 6th, because I'm sure maybe we'll have you back to talk about these later in the spring. But um, this has a great title, The Salad Dressing Murder. I could have called this the salad dressing murder, the red bat murder, or the cookie murder. Those were those were terms that were used interchangeably for this particular story. And I was so intrigued by the idea of a salad dressing murder that, of course, I had to dig. And it, again, just an absolutely fascinating story. Wow. Just kind of crazy. Yeah. Yeah, we'll look forward to those. I think they're going to be wonderful. Before we go, I do want to talk about um, your books, Betsy. I know that Forgotten Murders from Alaska's Capital is available now. It's out there in the world, um, and it sort of goes deeper into these stories, different ones and all of that. But you've got one coming out um, in the next year or so, right? Death in the mm-hmm. Underworld. Yep. What's this going to be about? Next spring, I wrote a novel, and it's based on a real case that happened here in Douglas and. Uh, the December of 1916. This would have just been a few months before the the, the um, mines collapsed, and the victim was a prostitute um, who was horribly killed. Um, and the real story is uh, she'd also been the victim of a white slavery ring run out of Argentina. I mean, it's it's an, again just an, another amazingly crazy story. And um, Unfortunately, in real life, uh, things do not proceed well with finding out who killed her. In my novel, I have a much more satisfactory ending. So the the novel is based on this real story. But then I bring in my favorite Pinkerton detective and I bring in some other characters from other stories. Nice. And that's the great thing about historical fiction is you can kind of, you know, take take the historical and then add a little fiction and kind of come up with a resolution, which is which is really nice. Much more satisfying. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And um, just for the folks out there who may want to follow, where do we find out more about True Crime Alaska? Well, we have a website, truecrimealaska.org. Probably the most active thing is a Facebook uh, author's page, Betsy has, 
and you go to Facebook and you search for True Crime Alaska and it comes up. You can follow. We share tidbits from the research we're doing. We announce upcoming programs. Um, we occasionally throw other things in there. They're just sort of fun uh, for the true crime audience. So that's, that's one of the best ways to do it. On and of Facebook. course, listen to Juno Afternoon. Of course, listen to Juno Afternoon and KTO. And then again, probably, so this will be the winter series. And then we're, we'd look forward to in the summer, you'll do some of your, your walking tours again as well. We're anticipating doing that. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. We have one. We have one in downtown Douglas and downtown Douglas, which as it is, um, historic downtown Douglas, and one in downtown Juneau. And both of them cover completely different murder stories, and they each have about seven different stories that we talk about. Wow. And we do those through the Juneau Douglas City Museum, so that's where that information will be in addition. Yeah, absolutely. You can find that at the City Museum website, um, juno.org slash museum in the later spring when they start to get that scheduled together. And the other thing that I really love about your um, your stories and everything, and we've talked about it before on the air, is sort of the social aspect of it. And you look, you come at it from different angles and you're finding different things. And um, as you dive in, like you said, this this coming program is 90 minutes. Um, it sounds like there's going to be a great deal of information. It's uh, True Crime Alaska. It's Alaska's first serial killer. is the first um, episode, I guess we could call it, of Death with Dessert. Yeah. It's at 3 p.m. on Saturday, February 3rd at McFeeters Hall, which is at Holy Trinity Church, 325 Gold Street in downtown Juneau. You can go to truecrimealaska.org or for tickets for this one, you can go to trinityjuno.org slash dessert.php. You'll have a lovely dessert made by Treadwell Kitchen with a quote unquote cereal crust, which <laughs> sounds delicious. Um, well, Betsy and Ed, thanks so much for coming on and letting us know about it. And um, hopefully all goes well with this weather. And, and by next weekend, um, it will uh, be a little bit drier out there, hopefully. And uh, we'll look forward to this spring series of Death with Dessert. Thanks so much for coming on. Gunnath Cheesh. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Okay, up next, we'll check in with KTOO's weather and climate reporter, Anna Canny. This is Juno Afternoon on KTOO. KTOO would like to acknowledge that we broadcast from the homelands of the Aquan. The Klenedi have stewarded this area for thousands of years. Today, our studios sit on a spot, once part of the Tidelands now covered over with buildings, roads, and parking lots. We recognize those families who travel to and from these tidelands to fishing and hunting grounds and to gatherings in other villages and still cherish it as an important part of their way of life for today and for future generations. We'd like to take a moment and say thank you to the individuals who helped us craft our daily land acknowledgement. Gunnath Cheesh to Vera Starbart, who planted the idea of making it super place specific and guided us on pronunciation. Lillian Petershaw, who created so much of the beautiful structure. Ishmael Hope, who gave us additional ideas. And Ernestine Hayes, Bob Sam, and Fran Houston, who gave important feedback. We are grateful to all those offering guidance as we grow as an organization. Sounds wild. Hi, I'm Riley Woodford for the Alaska Department of Fishing Game. A purse saner is hauling in a bulging net filled with pink salmon on a breezy summer day in 2023. In 2023, commercial fishermen in Alaska brought in more than 230 million salmon, and more than half that harvest was pink salmon. Historically, Pink salmon numbers and harvest are largest during odd-numbered years, especially in southeast Alaska. In 2023, that was 152 million pinks. And in the even-numbered year before that, 2022, it was less than half that, 69 million fish. Due to the two-year life cycle of pink salmon, the prediction for 2024, an even year, is also for low-end numbers about 19 million pinks, close to the 10-year average harvest for even-year production, and close to that parent-year harvest in 2022. 
Pink salmon mature in two years, so even in odd year populations are essentially unrelated. Sometimes cycle dominance can shift, but even year dominance has been the case by and large in areas of Alaska where most pink salmon are caught. I'm Riley Woodford. listening to Juno Afternoon from Studio 2K at KTOO. I'm your host, Boston Christopher. How about this weather, huh? Never a question more appropriate than now. Usually water cooler small talk these days in Juneau. It's a question of vital importance from freezing temperatures and making sure folks keep their pipes warm to record snow levels and constant avalanche watches to now heavy wet snow threatening rooftops all over town. Um, we thought it would be a good time to chat with KTO reporter Anna Canny, who covers weather and climate, to get a sense of what is going on out there. So, Gunnith Cheesh, Anna, thanks so much for coming in. Wasiyati, how are you? I'm doing all right, scrambling, you know, to keep keep track of all these weather impacts. But other than that, doing well. I know you have a story that will be coming out hopefully uh, not too long after this interview um, that you've been working on this afternoon, all about the rooftops and things that are happening. Um, Can you give us a little preview of what you've uncovered there? Yeah, the latest updates are even though now the snow has sort of backed off and we're seeing more rain, um, we have these snow loads, uh, you know, heavy snowfall of this past weekend's winter storm and then the winter storm last weekend, which I'm sure our listeners will remember. Um, So those two storms together uh, have made this January the second snowiest January on record. It's tied um, with another year for that. But the the long and short of it is there's a lot of snow piled up, accumulated uh, on roofs, on boats, and that snow is heavier and um, it's heavy and is about to get heavier as it rains. And so um, what we're seeing is uh, a lot of these snowfall accumulations have the potential for cave-ins and vessel sinking. And, and that's what I'm writing about today. Uh, we did see one roof collapse, uh, we know, at a warehouse. Um out near Diapack, and two porches collapsed um, out in the valley. Uh, we don't have an exact number on residential homes, but that's certainly a risk. But so far, no one was injured. Um, but it's just a, th- a thing to keep an eye out for. Um, every structure is different, but we're definitely approaching like a threshold of, of snow um, on roofs that can cl- cause these collapse. Yeah, absolutely. I heard, I saw some kind of notice that, um, I think it was maybe capital city fire rescue or something were saying, make sure you know the exits of your home and which mm-hmm. ones are the safest and where the roofs could possibly come in. If you can get a, you know, roof removal happening, I know we did some of that, but it's more, it's people, especially with flat roofs yeah. like that are really, cause as this wet, as this rain comes down and the, it just, compacts that snow and makes it heavy, heavy. And we know because we're digging out our cars with yeah. it, right? So just imagine what your roof is feeling at the moment. Um, so knowing which way you might have to go so that you don't get trapped. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. That's really important. And another thing Capital um, Fire and Rescue was talking about was not just that if you get a roof collapse, but also just being aware of where the snow is placed on your roof. Because as we get these warming temperatures, things are going to start to warm up this week in the forecast and the rain. Um, there's a potential for these sort of like icy, really heavy slabs to form. Oh. Um, and so like, you know, just keeping an eye out for falling icicles, falling slabs around the exits of your home is something to be important is something to be aware of these next few days because we will see a lot of movement of this snow off roofs. Wow. Yeah. That is, it's going to be, I mean, as all this snow melts, I mean, I know that you said it was a second year or second highest, mm-hmm. but is there anything, and maybe we don't know this, but like, is there anything about the amount of time that it's fallen in? Like, it seems like in this amount of time, we've yeah. had a lot of snow. Certainly. So I know one thing that was particularly notable about the storm we just saw that it is just now wrapping up was that um, the way meteorologists boiled it down for me was that the snowfall rate we saw was pretty normal, comparable to other storms we've had. But what we had this storm for the amount of snow we got was really about how long the front was parked over Juno. So if you look to the south, if you look even up in Haines, which often gets more snow than us, they didn't get quite as much snow. And and that's partially because 
or largely because this uh, front just sort of was parked over us, dumping a lot of snow for longer than usual. So normal snowfall rates, pretty normal snowfall rates, but we just, you know, it hovered over us. It was like us. trapped and it yeah. was sort of here and yeah. Normally it, kept, it would yeah. pass over and it, right. it just didn't do that so much this time. So that's okay. part of the reason. Wow. All right. Well, that's something to keep a lookout for. Now, um, let's talk about avalanche because I know that there's, you know, daily, daily avalanche watches and different things, but what's going on with that? Yeah. Um, short, Answer is avalanche danger is going to be high. Um, there are so many different factors that shape avalanches. Um, last week, I know I reported on a couple that came down on the Barrens Path. A lot of those were wind driven. This week, we're more worried about uh, rain on snow. Um, and that essentially, same thing you get with roofs collapsing or um, boats sinking because of the weight of the snow. What we'll see is the heavy rains testing the weak layers that we have in the snowpack. So so there's a potential to trigger more avalanches from that. Um, and of course, warming temperatures as well test those, those weak layers. So um, that's some of the things we're kind of worried about. And by we, I mean the avalanche forecasters yeah. in town. Yeah. <laughs> all, all the folks interested in working on those weather systems and keeping an eye on that for everybody. Mm-hmm. And do we anticipate, I know like oftentimes like Thane gets closed at a certain point and different roads get closed. I know Barron's is very susceptible to, yep. to these things and out in the valley a little bit. So are there... Uh, I know those folks probably know the best way to find out that information. Yeah, Um, but yeah, um, certainly you brought up a point I wanted to cover, which is that, yeah, we have seen some avalanche activity already today on Barron's small, small one that came down, uh, didn't cause any damage that's been reported. But, um, you know, we saw that come down this morning and also on Basin Road. So Basin Road's actually closed right now. Thane Road, some smaller slides have come down that haven't quite reached the road, but it will be closed for a couple days as a precautionary um, measure. So it's been closed since this morning and it will remain closed until tomorrow. They're trying to do the avalanche hazard mitigation. Um, You know, as folks who live here will have seen some of the man-made avalanches, they drop the explosives to set those off, keep the road a little bit safer. They're hoping to do that tomorrow, weather permitting. So, mm. so the road will likely reopen after they do that. But yeah, I mean, definitely there's, again, the short story is it's it's quite hard to know exactly when an avalanche will come down, but there's enough snow up there. And you mentioned the Barron's Path. Basically, the precaution there is that there's enough snow that it has the potential to reach houses. Um, no official evacuation order has been issued, but the the advisory, the urban av- avalanche advisory, um, basically says uh, avoid it if you can. Know that it can come down and reach houses. It has the potential. We, I mean, like I mentioned, we did see uh, over 60 inches of snow in January, so <laughs> it's all a lot of it's still setting up there. Um, but for the most up to date forecast um the link is juno.gov or dot org slash um emergency slash uh latest dash update i believe okay i'm sure if you, yeah, go to yeah, if you google org, it as well yeah. juno urban avalanche forecast it'll come right up that's the yeah. most up-to-date um okay and that's update every morning so i would definitely if you live in those areas keep an eye on that over the next couple of days because we're going to see a lot of things change with the forecast wow okay that's yeah. great um and is there anything that we have to think about in terms of uh is are, are you looking at or covering anything to have to do with roads like regular driving conditions have you heard anything about that in terms of because i'm always imagining just as my myself like what i see is that it melts and then it freezes and then yeah and then there's ice everywhere and are we anticipating those temperatures for the coming days being pretty warm and then freezing again yeah there's some potential for those fluctuations where it warms up during the day and gets really cold at night and and we have some freezing rain so that can certainly lead to some slick conditions i know today the recommendation was sort of uh to try and stay off the roads if you can because we have all the slush and mush that um that plows and city services are trying to clear before it turns into that icy those icy patches but um i'd say generally speaking yeah conditions are going to still remain a little bit dodgy as we have these freezing rains and and these really fluctuating temperatures so that's awesome yeah Uh, that's i mean awesome in the in the true sense of the word too because it's just been 
uh, a wild couple of weeks here yeah. in Juneau. Um, again, we'll look for Anna's story later today um, on rooftops. Um, be mindful of that. Um, go to Juno.org slash emergency to find out more about um, avalanche watches and all those kind of things. And stay tuned for, um, you know, those road conditions as well for your morning commutes and all of that. And, you know, that's the one thing about um, COVID is everybody learned how to work from home. So, yeah. <laughs> so uh, you know, it's so funny because it's like, oh, I get to stay home today. It is not a true snow day. You get to hop on your computer and still do some work. Yeah. As long as the internet doesn't go down, I guess. <laughs> so anyway, Anna, thanks for coming in today and sharing that with us. You can follow all of Anna's reporting at ktoo.org. It's Anna Caddy, Anna Canny, KTO's weather and climate reporter. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. Yeah, Gunnath Cheesh. do it for today's Juno Afternoon. Have a wonderful Wednesday. Safe and sound. Stay dry if you can. On tomorrow's show, as we look toward the 50th anniversary of KTOO this coming weekend, we will air our year in review episode featuring retired general manager Bill Legere and new general manager Justin Showman. Juno Afternoon airs Tuesday through Friday at 3 p.m. right here on KTOO Juno 104.3 and KAUK Juno Bay 91.7. Hello out the road. Find the show online at ktoo.org slash Juno Afternoon where you can listen to episodes, subscribe to the podcast, offer feedback, give ideas, or find out how to be a guest on the show. Our theme music is by Indian Agent. Juno Afternoon is a project of the KTOO Arts and Culture Team. I'm Boston Christopher, producer and host of the program, with help today from Aaron Tripp. Thanks, and have a warm and safe Juno evening. Thank you.